Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, it's a good one. The professors, the doctors are in. Christina M. Greer, PhD. Professor Christina Greer is here. She's an associate professor of political science and American studies at Fordham University. She was the 2018 fellow for the Mick Silver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University Silver School of Social Work. Professor Greer's book, Black Ethnics, Race Immigration and the Pursuit of the American Dream was the recipient of the W.E. Du Bois Best Book Award in 2014. So get it. She is a frequent political commentator on several media outlets, and I'm sure you've seen her and gone, wait a minute, I know that voice. MSNBC, WNYC, New York One. She's the co-host of the New York-centered podcast, Fact-NYC, and co-host of the Black-centered podcast, What's In It For Us. She's the political editor at Grio, the producer and host of The Aftermath at The Contender on Ozzy.com. And she writes a weekly column for the Amsterdam News, one of the oldest black newspapers in the United States. Go, Christina. She's busy. Dr. Janice Adams is back. Dr. Janice Adams is an Emmy Award winning journalist, historian, entrepreneur, bestselling author of 11 books and host of Public Radio's The Janice Adams Show and podcast. She's a frequent on-air guest. She has appeared on ABC, BET, CBS, CNN, Fox News, NBC's The Today Show, and NPR's All Things Considered. With more than 500 articles and essays and columns to her credit, her work has been featured in Essence and Miss Magazine. Her syndicated column ran in the Hearst newspapers for 16 years. Her commentary has been broadcast on CBS, NPR, and published in the Huffington Post. And check out her book, Sister Days, 365 Uplifting Meditations on Courage, Daring, and Resistance that brings us valuable reminders of how real women in real times from Harry Tubman to aviator Bessie Coleman, Wild West legend, stagecoach Mary, and the world-renowned writer Maya Angelou created a better way of life for themselves and a better world for others. Great for Black History Month and it's great for Women's Month. February 25th, that's this Friday. I'll be in Princeton, New Jersey. Come and check out your girl. That's me. I'll be performing live. Yes, I'm back on the road at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. That's this Friday, February 25th. Go to my website and check it out, marinafranklin.com. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you. We make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on that auto-download function on the Friends Like Us for Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and our Twitter is friendslikeusten. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to those patreon friends it's because of you we keep going merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks tank tops they're all available go to my website and weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant that's every saturday at three o'clock p.m eastern standard time with evelyn frick and my wacky friend dave Juskow. we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guests stopping by and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows and with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still. You never know when there's a variant out there. So come on, wear that mask and get vaccinated. And Black Lives Matter. 
Janice Adams and Christina Greer. I am. This is like I've never had you both on at the same time, have I? No, no. This, this is, is no. first, mm-mm. Mm-mm. first this time is I'm like, meeting her. Oh my god, this is a treat. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. a treat for me too. Yes. Me too. This is great. Now, Christina, do you know of Janice Adams? Well, I looked up Lady Janice Adams, and I'm thoroughly, thoroughly excited about our conversation. <laughs> How and kind. before you came, before you came on, Marina, I was explaining to Janice that I was going to come to her home and steal her sweater <laughs> off of her back. <laughs> yes, I, we have just met, and it yes, does not we matter. Have just to met, me. <laughs> and and you know, hey, the shirt off our back to our sisters. Hey. You're both incredible women who've done a lot in education and in history. It's Black History Month, and it's an important time to have women, Black women who really know what they're talking about. And um, I've had Janice Adams on the show so many times. I feel like I'm like a part of your family, even though I haven't been. I want to sit on that picture. Can you describe this picture for our listeners? Because they can't see it, but I can. What, the Jonathan Green behind Janice? No, this she sent me a picture of Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, I my Valentine's Day picture from my son is me with my four grandchildren. Oh. And um he said putting the G in GJ because I am known to them as GJ, grand, for grandmother Janice. So that was my my um Valentine's Day treat from the family, which I just love. And so we have Kadar on the left. Um, he is at an art school. In the center, we have my 12-year-old Sky, um, who is a middle schooler. The next one over is Samiko. She is a student who's now doing her study abroad in London. And on the Far right, we have Kyle, who is our, he is now graduated from college. So he set the, he set the standard for the other three. And that's the good. Excellent. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Look at the generations of brilliance. Yes. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. So thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, all forms of love. Uh, sometimes with, with something like Valentine's Day, we act as though it is just one kind of love. And here we are at Black History Month. Valentine's Day be, is really central to why we even have Black History Month in February. So there we go. And it is, if you want to hear the story, do you know the story? Of I why? don't. Uh, it begins with, of course, uh, Carter G. Woodson is the founder of Black History, Negro History Week that morphs gradually into Black History Month. But why February? And it starts back with a man wanting a birthday. That's the simple part of it. And because during the era of slavery, birthdays were hard to come by, our Black lives did not matter. And so our birthdays were rarely recorded. But this man had done so much in in our history, um, 
Underground Railroad conductor, self-emancipated person, all of that, looking out for others, newspaper publisher. And he just wanted a birthday and he didn't know what his birthday was. So he couldn't ask his mother because she'd been sold away from him when he was little. He couldn't ask his father because his father was the man who impregnated his mother, but from whom he had to escape as his former owner. And so how to find it. But he remembered always that before his mother, who could not even you know, control her own life, she had swaddled him in her love and she always called him her little Valentine. So he chose Valentine's Day for his birthday. And he did not know the year he was born. He chose the mid-teens, 1818, for his birth year. And so when Carter G. Woodson wanted to have Negro History Week, he centered it on the birthday of our wonderful, amazing elder Frederick Douglass, whose story that is. And so that is why... Negro History Week. It is absolutely oh, tied to the love between of of a mother for her son. I love that because a lot of times comedians want to joke about Valentine's Day robbing us of his Black History Month. So thank you for that. Yes, and the shortest month of the year and all yeah, those all other jokes. Mm-hmm. But it has it has an extraordinary um history and the fact that you know, this I, I often tell it when I'm speaking to women who think they have nothing to give their children because they're not this and they're not that. And I say, no, you know, your love as a mother powered a Frederick Douglass. That's beautiful. That's you know? so much better than a heart-shaped pizza, on- <laughs> which everyone's been forcing me to have as a single woman. They're like, you can still eat a heart-shaped pizza, though. You know, oh my goodness. Christine, I want to ask you this. This is for fun on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. I d- always look at my guests' Instagram page just to get what they're doing lately. You did something that I'm going to follow up on in checking your water quality. Yes. Can you I'm tell our listeners about tripping. that? So for the New York listeners, and I know you've got international listeners. I I remember coming to a show and you had your crew from Australia who loves you. But a lot of cities... Uh, domestically and abroad, if you call like the equivalent of 311, that's what we have in New York. That's the non-emergency number. Or you can go on the online equivalent of like 311. I think it's like 311.org. You can request a free water quality kit. I did not Free, absolutely free. Postage paid for, for it to come to you and for you to return it. And so this is a Michael Bloomberg, Mayor Michael Bloomberg uh, invention, where he asked his staff, don't forget Michael Bloomberg came to power right after 9-11. And after 9-11, some people left the city, but by and large, the vast majority of New Yorkers stayed put. And so he said, well, clearly it's not domestic terrorism that would force New Yorkers to leave. What would be something that would cause people to leave this city in droves? And at the time we had roughly 8 million people. Now we're closer to 9 million people. And his staff essentially said, if our water quality ever changed, if someone ever poisoned our water quality, um, or, if, or if we just didn't have enough water, then essentially the city would evaporate and the only people who would be left were kind of destitute people. We'd go from essentially a city of 8 million people to about 500,000 
almost overnight. And so he decided that he would shore up our water quality. So he bought all this land upstate, Janice, he bought all this land upstate to um, protect our watershed. He built a third tunnel. We have these two tunnels that bring all of our water from upstate down to, you know, the five boroughs. You know, we have some of the best water in the world, uh, but especially in the United States. Those of us who were born in New York, we've got the best teeth. If you ever go to a dentist outside of New York. And so he built this third tunnel so we could redirect some of the water. So leaching wouldn't happen. That's when the lead gets into the water. So if you're familiar with Flint, had they changed those pipes for about a million dollars a few years ago, we wouldn't have this billion dollar crisis uh, and a health crisis that we're seeing in places like Flint and Newark and upstate New York, certain communities. And so he decided um, if you start looking around, once you notice them, you'll see them everywhere. There are these water quality kind of um, little metal boxes all over every neighborhood in the five boroughs. And that's for people to test the water quality on a daily and weekly basis. So that if anything ever happens to the pipes, um, they, can, they can fix it and they can, they can get it uh, taken care of very quickly. So for you getting your water checked for free, you're not only doing something for you and your personal health, you're also providing the city with data about your water quality. Because we've got the pipes that are underground that you know, deal with the whole city. Then you've got the pipes that run into your neighborhood. You've got the pipes that run into your building. And then you have the pipes that run into your apartment. And so they're checking all of those pipes for lead. And so if ever there are sort of qualities, you know, certain numbers of lead that are unacceptable or dangerous, they can pinpoint, okay, we know Marina lives in this borough, in this neighborhood, in this building, and on this floor. And so we can capture the problem before it turns into Flint crisis. Because keep in mind, Flint is a small town and we've seen the horrible effects, physical effects and otherwise that it's done for a community. And there was a a wonderful play that was around last year called Colored Water about a family in Flint that's dealing with the water crisis. And what was so genius about it was everything that they did was measured in bottles of water. So like, you know, the daughter accidentally spilled some spaghetti on the floor and the mother's like, how could you do that? That's going to cost us, you know, 12 bottles of water. You know, it's like, oh, we're making Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, well, we need 217 bottles of water to like wash the greens and make the pies and cook the turkey. So like their whole concept of time and space is all in bottles of water. So one of the Bloomberg era projects was to make it free for all New Yorkers to test their water. It's so easy. The instructions are in multiple languages. And essentially you wake up in the morning because they want your pipes to sit for a few hours. So I like to just wake up in the morning before I start anything. You run your water for about a minute. You put in one water bottle, fill it up. And then, you know, there's something else. You wait like another two minutes and then you fill up the other one. They have the tape, the packaging tape. They've got the box. They've got the label. All you have to do is just drop it back into the, the, either the blue box or take it to your local post office. And within a week, you get a report about your water quality. And so it's really important because one is a civic duty, which, yes. you know, I, you know, I love a civic duty. Now you know me with the three. You know I love I'm, a a civic, duty. I'm a civic duty lady. I mean, you know, I vote Chicago style I early and often. <laughs> you got, you, oh, I've got some I've got some Garrett's popcorn for you. Oh, I love Garrett's popcorn. Um, I need to make sure I get it to you. But um, but what I what I love about it is I got my report. And because I had just moved now, granted, I only moved across the street, but I was in a whole new building. And so, you know, I don't know these pipes. I still use a Brita. However, I didn't know, you know, the building's built in 1915. So I got my, my water quality tested. I'm all great. No lead. I emailed my neighbors, 
you know, we were on like a building email chat. That's and I was like, right. just so you know, my apartment in my building is all good. But in case you want to know about the pipes that are leading into your specific apartment, you too can call 311 or go online and get that data. Nice. And it's really important. And a lot of cities, especially post-Flint, are doing that free service for citizens because it helps them capture issues before they get out of control and cost a city billions of dollars. And to say nothing of the lawsuits that you know Flint is incurring because people are suing the state of Michigan as they should. So it's just, it's, it's something that also just gives me peace of mind. It is so important. Go ahead, Janice. I was just going to say, and Flint isn't the only one, Mm -hmm. but um, I mean, it's the one that is uh, dominated the headlines as it should. But But New York and New Jersey, I mean, so many cities. All over and uh, 60 Minutes did a piece about um, pipes and water and all that in cities that are still dealing with the legacy of, not even the legacy, the current events of overt racism and disfranchisement of Black citizens, even Black homeowners, and how they are really, excuse me, really jeopardized by this water problem and pipes and city uh, cities being not only irresponsible, but totally racist towards Black lives and Black lives don't matter. In, in New York City, of course, the reason that we have and yes, I'm from the city, the city, the city. Um, but the reason why we have that great water is because for long before Bloomberg, New York's water has been piped in from upstate New York, where there are these magnificent reservoirs that are just gorgeous to visit, you know, to just drive by and see these expanses of water that look like lakes that are New York City water. And um, however, there is another side to it from the Black point of view, which is something that people don't talk about, but have talked about for a while, which is that in an effort to control Harlem, what if Harlem ever went, you know, from a revolt and rebellion standpoint, quote, off the rails, and there is a separate water system. So um, it's Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember this during the pandemic, there was a, the, the, I joke on stage. I said the first one, the real one. Um, but the first wave of this, right. There was a, the water was not test tasting the same. And I am on the next door app because I'm become that woman where I need to know everything that's going on. You're Pearl from 227. <laughs> yes. Yes. I am Pearl from 227. It has happened. Full blown Pearl. So the thing is, is everyone was talking about they switched the water and where it was coming from. I think that's what you're talking about too, Christina, but does that apply to Harlem too then when they switch that water? I don't know about switching the water. I just know that this is, this is something has been reported to have been going on in Harlem. I think probably since, um, since the, Roosevelt era. Oh, wow. wow. I didn't know about that. I just know that we always had two tunnels that bring all of our water from these wonderful reservoirs Janice mentioned down into the city. And we, we redirected one 
to the third water tunnel that brings our water And I think down. that was when it was like the change and everyone was And maybe because, you yeah. know, I mean, those, those tunnels, the reason why we needed to build a third uh, and Bloomberg had the foresight to do so is because, one, we were leaking millions upon millions of gallons every day. So that's just wasting water. And two, you know, obviously those pipes are over 100 years old. I mean, the, the engineering that is beneath us in this city is phenomenal. I mean, like we can't even imagine like what we're walking on top of. So oftentimes when you see construction, when you're walking around and, you know, it's like you see Con Ed and, you know, it's like, what are they doing? They're just digging up our streets. It's like, well, oftentimes they were laying down the various tracks of the new tunnel to bring in all of this water to provide it for 9 million people. And you know that so many buildings in New York, because these pre-war buildings, you know, without the elevators, they have that pressure system so that when we lose electricity, we don't, we're one of the few cities that doesn't lose water because of the engineering that's the, sort of the gravitational, towers. the water towers and the gravitational pull. So even with emergencies, I'm so old school, I'll fill up the bathtub in a second. Like, <laughs> oh Lord, something's happening. Let me fill up my bathtub. But we don't really need to in New York because we've got our water towers. Like we're actually pretty safe by and large, but you know, I'm still, I'm so old school. <laughs> well, when you're upstate where all this water is that is being sent down to, to New York, um, it's infamous for losing water when you have power outages. And um, it, it just can, can go on because also you don't have the same density. So you don't have the same uh interest in what you do in these, you know, how they don't, they don't have the same manpower or woman power to get things back online. And so people who are looking for houses frequently do look for houses that have their own wells mm -hmm. so that they will have well water. Um, it, it's just so amazing. Water is fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. I grew up with well water. Ugh. <laughs> really? Orange no clothes. Oh, no, we had wonderful, <laughs> at all my houses, we have had the best water because we had well water. Oh, we had, I think my mom bought the house and we didn't understand the water situation. It was orange. And I remember thinking as we were growing up, I was like, is this okay? Like, we can't really right. drink this water. <laughs> water. I was like, I can't really bathe in this properly. I was like, what's going on? My clothes well, are I mean, orange. And some of that could have been not the well, but the pipes leading into the house. And so this is why, yeah. you know, we did a podcast episode on my FAQ.NYC. We had Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen, who worked in the Bloomberg administration uh, in the Department of Environmental Protection. And so his breakdown of kind of water and water supply, and obviously the importance of water. I mean, so many people are, are hedging their bets. If you watch Succession, you know, the Connor, that the horrible, <laughs> all of the children are horrible, but the oldest son, I mean, the very first episode, he says, oh, I'm buying up all this land. And I think it was Colorado or New Mexico because, you know, um, I'll have control of the water supply. So when people need water, they'll have to come and buy it from me. I mean, many people are mm. prospecting that water will be limited and they will be in charge and in control of the water. I mean, this is why fracking is such a dangerous proposition in upstate New York, because we're drilling into the earth, extracting gas, but that gas does ultimately seep into our water supply. And so we've got, what, 30 million people in New York, 9 million people concentrated in the small density in the five boroughs. We need to make sure that we maintain the integrity of our water. I mean, as does every state in every major city as well. 
But you know, you're talking about water and two things are coming to mind. One is um, in New York City being infamous for water main breaks and the amount of water that is lost all across the city because of all of a sudden it'll go whoosh and these hundred year old pipes will, you know, just dissolve and then the water explodes all over. But Joan Didion, who the author who died recently, Joan Didion wrote a wonderful memoir called Where I Was From. And she got in trouble with her fellow Californians because she talked about the history of white Californians blocking indigenous wow. people from having access mm -hmm. to water in order for them to take over and control the state. And so, and of course, you know, of course it was true. But they did not want to own up to in in the land where they love to talk about being pioneers and all this kind of stuff. They don't really want to talk about what that means. So they attacked her for talking about what was done to Native American people all over so great. from the gold rush days going forward. It gold rush of eighteen forty nine going forward, so it's it's powerful. And I mean, and we're also building cities that aren't on waterways. I mean, you think about our old historical cities, you know, Chicago and St. Louis and Pittsburgh, and obviously all the cities on the East Coast. You know, we had significant <laughs> waterways. These newer cities, Atlanta, Vegas, Vegas is in the middle of a desert. desert. Like the only people who thought about that wow. were criminals who yeah. were just like, let's just do our bidding <laughs> in the desert. But we've got to get all of that water out there for all of those hotels all the industries that support Vegas just pumping water in to the desert. So it absolutely makes no sense. And so, the, you know, when we think about the longevity as an urbanist, I think about the longevity of certain cities, you know, Atlanta in the middle of the state, right? And so how it, with no beautiful <laughs> reservoirs in sight, um, it's, you know, we have to sort of think long-term about some of our strategic planning or lack thereof. It's so yeah. interesting that you said that because yeah. um, someone I know recently was debating over whether to move to Atlanta. And um, that's such a important fact about water. I never th I never think like this. So this is yes. great. And where where our homes as African-Americans homes are traditionally cited is also interesting because in some of these areas like Louisiana, one of the reasons for the terrible impact of the hurricane was because the least desirable land was closer to the water. And, um, and those homes were lost. But then in other areas like the Carolinas, where you have water, it was the areas that were taken over because having cities or sites, more than cities, sites on the waterfront were the elite thing to do. And then you have other times when, like in New York, the waterfront of New York was not attractive and they were dumping garbage into the Hudson like mad. Water is an amazing story. And there's a huge amount of it that has to do with race when it comes mm -hmm. to the United States. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, my grandparents are from Yulee, Florida, a little town. But most people know about uh, Amelia Island and Fernandina Beach. Those are sort of the, the new kind of vacation destination places. There's a Ritz-Carlton there now, which 
you know, was not there when my mom was growing up. Uh, it's home to American Beach, which is one of the oldest Black beaches and one of the only Black beaches. But so many of my grandparents' relatives lived in Fernandina Beach because nobody wanted to live on the water because it's Northern Florida. So they would get snow, it gets cold there. And now as, you know, my grandparents' generation has sort of passed on and like, you know, the, the last remaining folks who were there have held onto their houses. When they pass, the sort of gentrifying vultures are right there because it's beachfront property. And so now that you have, you know, energy efficient windows and insulation, you can have a beachfront property place, whether you live there four seasons out of the year or just use it as a, as a rental place. And so much of the Black community, as Janice has mentioned, is now gone because they were there when it was sort of the, the undesirable land, the same way you see so many housing projects built all along the Hudson and the East River. And it's like, why would they put housing projects on waterfront property? And it's like, well, before we had insulation and good windows and tons of pollution, that's where you put poor people. And now that it's desirable and, and developers are like, well, wait a minute, why are these poor people living on, you know, the equivalent of some of the best real estate in New York? We're seeing these fights about people wanting to push out poor people and having developers come in and sort of change the composition, not just of the building, but of the whole neighborhood. And the real um, targets of those, I, I really hate that word gentrification, as though we're not entitled to be gentry and we're not entitled, meaning mm -hmm. property owners, landed gentry, property owners. And so many of those people that we're talking about being made vulnerable are Black homeowners. They are Black property owners. And the way traditionally that America has gotten rid of them is to raise the taxes the property taxes in their area so that even though many of them have had their homes in for for generations they are not income wise of an income level for them to be able to afford taxes that jump 3 to 3 10 percent, you know, 10 times, three times, whatever. They're just not in that position. And the vulnerability is that that is the way those land development comes in and says, we want it. Yeah, it's yours, but we want it in the American tradition from what was done to indigenous people. We want it. You can't have it and make, create a climate of policy which is what this really is about. You know, policy is, is like, you know, eat your spinach, but, but, but policy is what this is about. And it is removing, just the way it has removed Black farmers from their land, it will remove Black homeowners from their land um, because the taxes will be uber-increased to be able to force them not to be able to afford it and have to sell. So I, um, this is so good. I, I had to mute myself because speaking of civil, like an unrest, there's a dog barking um, nonstop. I don't know if you can hear that dog, but <laughs> I'm an animal lover, so I don't want to complain too much about the lady. But I often think this is a white woman who moved into my building because she knew she could kind of, get away with this in like a black neighborhood <laughs> because in any other building you could not get away with a dog barking like this often anyway and now he stops that's good good for you dog 
Now, I do want to point to this article that Christina Greer added and sent to us both because it's a great um, article. Christina, can you talk to it about, you know, Mar- you know, I talk about how comedians, sometimes we joke, but then we don't realize the, the, the real background story to Marion Barry as a model for, you know, what city mayors should do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I wrote this piece, it's because I, I care about cities a lot. And, you know, New York has a new mayor who I'm struggling with trying to understand and figure out. And so I wrote a piece for the Times trying to work through some of my thoughts on having a police, a black police officer as a mayor who's complicated, but he represents a lot of black people's thoughts. You know, I mean, for those of us who are on family text chains, we know ideologically we are a very diverse people. Oh, can I just throw, so I can say this real fast. I was on the block association with the precinct precinct when i say black thoughts what's going on this woman was on there and she was like listen we need (laughs) we need these officers on these streets we need them out it is like a loony bin out here yes there are a lot and not just black homeowners black people who are like we need more cops Mm -hmm. right we need all the cops and also don't forget I mean, being a police officer working in a police force is a really significant entree into the black middle class. So you have thousands of people who are employed by police departments across the the country. So I was trying to grapple with that with Eric Adams. And then I just, I I bristle every time people make jokes about Marion Barry. And I think Chris Rock's very famous joke about Marion Barry, like, you know, you look up to him, it's like, oh, I could, you know, do crack and be mayor. And I feel like it's such a dangerous joke because for generation, like our generation, if you don't know about his civil rights history, if you don't know about, especially his first term as mayor, you think that he was just this crackhead. And these black people who voted for him for three additional terms over the course of 20 plus years are just these ignorant imbeciles who are just like, oh, he's black. So I'll vote for him. I don't care that he did crack. And it's like, first of all, that is an inaccurate story. Second of all, yes, just like a lot of Americans, this man had his own demons with substance abuse and alcoholism. However, including George Bush, too, and the Kennedys. But we didn't have the government spending millions upon millions of dollars to stake him out and set him up to sort of get five minutes of video. So I wanted to talk about first term Marion Barry. Now, granted, I'm working with editors. So like my first draft is not what made it into the nation. But I wanted to talk about the jobs program, right? Dave Chappelle, Jeffrey Wright, every Black person of a certain age in D.C. says specifically, I had money in my pocket. I had a job. I had dignity. I didn't get pregnant as a teenager because I was working and I had something to do and I wasn't getting into mischief and shenanigans. And it's because of Mary and Barry and these summer programs. And I'm not saying that if you had a teenage pregnancy something's wrong with you. But I know a lot of people were like, listen, I would have been in the house doing all types of shenanigans if I weren't working. And he gave me purpose. And so I wanted to look at, you know, just ever so briefly, some of the programs that he implemented as mayor to keep Black people in their homes, to prevent the word that Janice said is horrible. But, and it is, it's like, because we call it gentrification because it, it's it's sort of like an acceptable term, but it's white people taking over cities. Yes. And so first things first, Marion Barry comes in as this with the Chocolate City. It's majority black, which turned in, in 1957, I believe it became majority black. And immediately the federal government was like, we're taking away most of your power as mayor. So they'd never had a black mayor before. The black the former mayors of DC had a lot of autonomy, autonomy and a lot of money. And don't forget, 
D.C. is a district and it is not a state. So they don't have two senators. They don't have a voting member in the House. They've got Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's been there forever, but she can sit in and sort of say her piece. But when it comes time for the 435 to vote, she ain't in it. And they don't have a governor. And so like the structure of other states, say that we have in New York, D.C. doesn't have. So the mayor has had a lot of power. It's Just like Puerto Rico and Guam and all these other, and St. Croix and you name it. So of course they get their first black mayor in 1979 and immediately all the powers get snatched. So he's working within a, you know, a system that is not helping him financially. You know, when the government shuts down, they're like, oh, we'll just stop picking up trash. He's like, absolutely not. We will not have rats take over this city and have people living in squalor. Like we will still pick up trash. And so he helps create this pathway for middle class, but especially a black middle class, not just with homeownership, but with jobs programs and making certain jobs who have been in DC, making them do their part and employ people and pay their fair share. And so this is, you know, as I said in the piece, it's a quintessential example of taxation without representation. You have all these Black people paying into the federal government, but what are they really getting back? And Marion Barry really fought for his city to have the goods and services that they deserved. And so I start off with kind of this dangerous Chris Rock joke where Marion Barry many times is, is thought of as just this crackhead, you know, sort of failure. And the latter term of Marion Barry obviously was, was not great, right? I mean, People around him should have said, we need to get you into a program. But if anyone's ever met a politician before, once they run for office, they're in it. They, they, it's, it's like a drug. They, they can't leave office. That and we think about de Blasio. Power I mean, de Blasio's former, former mayor of New York City, he was going to run for governor, then he decided not to. Now he might run for Congress. I mean, pretty soon he'll run for community board and still, he just needs to run for something. That's just the way politicians are. So I wanted to really contextualize, especially for younger people, who have heard the name or maybe haven't even heard the name. But it's like, he is one of the icons from the 1960s. You know, don't forget there were people called riots, but the rebellions in Washington, D.C. You know, and he was a real leader in making sure that Black people had not just power, but also money in their pockets after some of these uprisings. And to say nothing about his work in the civil rights movement at SNCC and Dr. King and all this other foundational work that he did before he even became a, a politician. And so that was my... This is my like small contribution. I'm not a historian. I don't pretend to be, but I'm, I've been excavating these great black people to make sure that Marina, not just people from our generation know, but like people from a younger generation know. And also a reminder of people say like my mom's generation, sort of a reminder because my mom sent me a text this morning. She was like, I've always liked him. And she was like, and thank you for like giving me the points to remember why it is that I liked him. She was like, because for so many years, all you did was read about the horrible stuff that he was going through. And you forget about the 25 plus years that he put laying a foundation for Black people specifically. And I'm not saying people of color. I'm talking about Black folks. I think it's such an important point you bring up because of what we're going through in New York City right now with, like we were saying, like police on, more police on the street is not the only solution or is the solution, but giving people, giving kids something to do. You know, I used to do after school theater, reading workshops, after school programs were cut in New York City like crazy. And so you got kids just with no purpose, like you were saying. And I also think it's, it's really important um, that, oh, I had such a good point and then I forgot it. 
Um, and then come back. It's brilliant. It was, so, it, but I also think the nuances of politicians when we talk about like what they're like representing and like I've I had on Troy LaRavier from Chicago, who is the um, president of the teachers union. No, not teachers union. They don't, principals don't have a union in Chicago. He wants one. And he was really talking about something very complicated, which is how we hold our politicians to this ideal humanness. And we need to look at them a little bit more like, I mean, they are human, so they have flaws. Um, you know, everyone seems to, you know, have a sexual flaw. <laughs> but, our, you know, we've got to stop thinking that they don't have flaws. And I think that's, that's what got a lot of, it seems to be, a lot of black politicians out of their jobs. And it's what, like you were just saying, the FBI uses to get rid of people who really have helped in this way. I didn't know any about anything about Marion Varian. And I wish we had a conversation and I wish it was in the headlines more often about how we're holding these politicians to really unrealistic um, human behavior. I don't know how there's, a, I don't know how to phrase it better, but I think it needs to be talked about more anyway. I, I, actually knew Marion Barry. He was a friend and he was a friend. Uh, I didn't know him first. I actually knew his wife, Effie Barry, first. And then the friendship blossomed from there. Um, and I, I was so happy for your piece, uh, to see your piece, because it really spoke to the man as opposed to, uh, you mentioned the flaws, but but um, the man is a human being who said no, who was courageous enough to say no. And he said no from the time that he was young. And so for many people, it was, oh my God, you know, that this man who was willing to say no was elected to anything. Um, you talked about the the um, picking up the trash. As an aside, I remember I my husband and I had an apartment on Central Park West, one of the wonderful pre-war buildings that is valued to say the least in New York City, in you know below 110th Street, all that kind of thing, below and essentially we were there and the apartment was wonderful doorman building the whole bit and all of a sudden we began to see first of all critters in the apartment that we'd never seen before and then we began to see which was the last straw mice in the apartment which we'd never had before and finally the building got together and said, what is going on here? And we learned that New York City had decided that that part of Central Park West, one block above 96th Street, was to be let go. So they stopped picking up the trash. 
As a result, in these buildings, they would be for um, the not the garbage disposals, but you know where where you send it down the chute and it's collected, and then you know the the there is a there is an alleyway behind the building, and the garbage trucks come through and you know very nicely clean up, and essentially, then the whole alleyway began to build up with trash. And then other problems began to come began to come as a result of that. Finally, someone it got into someone's head that not only did a lot of white people, wealthy white people live there, but it's New York City for heaven's sakes. It's Central Park West. These are beautiful historic buildings facing the park. And they remembered to pick up the trash again. The alleyway was clean. The rats went away. The roaches and ants went away. And all of a sudden, it was regentrified for the people who had been living in the building all along. Marion Barry said no to that entire process. And so when we even have buildings that, as we discussed at the top of the show, um, where people are, are saying water problems and all of that, those were the kinds of things that were allowed to happen in these areas that Marion Barry put a plug in before the whole city went under with racism saying it was now majority black and we don't have to deal with it and they're just a colony anyway. That was his crime. And I remembered um, when you say that he he does, the, he's elected in 1979. Um, one of the things that I discuss in, in my book, Freedom Days, is the cycles of American history. And I'm not going to go into a whole long thing about it, but we we see this backswing that's taking place right now. We see it every single day. Another headline. It's happening. It's being done. It's not happening. It's being done systemically and systematically. In at, one of the things we don't realize, many people don't realize, is that at the end of the 19th century, with Reconstruction, there were more elected officials, black elected officials at that time until, in total across the country, until roughly the 80s in this century. And we don't think about that because voting rights were number one taken away. But before voting rights were taken away, um, I, I have a piece in, in my book glory days, where I talk about the first African-American governor. His name was PBS Pinchback, and he was in office for 35 days. And the reason was um, that he essentially, there was a concerted effort not just to destroy voting rights for Black men, who were the, Black women were not yet able to vote, um, but to take away all black politicians, to get to take away that number, to stop destabilizing as whites thought the society. And so Pinchback ends up in office for 35 days and he is 
given a choice that he can essentially step down gracefully or he will be smeared and tarnished the way not only Marion Barry was, but um, uh, Adam Clayton Powell was. And the attempt is made consistently over and over again to take Blacks out of office. Marion was a victim of that, and he was part of that. And so if you mentioned um, Marina, that, you know, jokes are made, but people don't understand the context. Not knowing Black history is disastrous for Black people because then we don't know some of the things that we're just seeing and that, number one, either they have happened before and why they've happened and how they've happened. So we see the patterns that are being coming in right now. Or we just don't even know possibilities. On the other hand, I'm looking at Christina and uh, to above her looking at from my side, but above her over her right shoulder, we're seeing Stacey Abrams. And by her left shoulder, we're seeing James Baldwin. And Shirley Chisholm. I, I'm not seeing Shirley Chisholm yet, oh. but but there she is. And <laughs> I had the privilege of knowing her too. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary woman who um, we're dealing with the immigrant immigration and what's being done to people at the border. I met her because she was adamant about what was being done to the Haitians, who at that point, their bodies were washing up on the shore, and there was an uh, an article in, I believe it was the New Yorker magazine, either New York magazine or the New Yorker, might have been New York magazine, the, at the time that on one side of the page were the Polish people being royally welcomed, Lekwalenza and that whole movement and the Polish people being royally welcomed into JFK. And on the flip side were the bodies of the Haitians being washing up on shore mm. as they tried to flee what was going on in Haiti. Shirley Chisholm took that on and she made it a point to bring it to Congress and also to visit the at that point, the Brooklyn Navy Yard is where they were then housing those who had survived. They literally imprisoned them at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And also, you have to say, the white Cubans at the same point were also being welcomed, um, but not the darker skinned people. So, you know, so much of this is is out there. And then so much of this is how we got over our souls looking back and wonder how we got over it. And we did. I think it's so important what we're all talking about because, you know, this point, and I'm going to go back to this, but I, about critical race theory and the, Mm -hmm. and what they're doing to these teachers who are trying to, you know, just teach African-American history, which is also American history. And, this fear mongering, I call it, that Republicans are doing to prevent people from under because if you know about your past, you if you don't know about your past, you're doomed to repeat it, which we're seeing with immigration reform, right? Everything you're talking about is so, people don't even know this history, so they don't understand it. And then they talk in these bullet points, but they don't know what they're talking about. 
Um, but before I go to that, I, I want to bring up this Chappelle incident that happened recently because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about like gentrification when it comes to like how black people aren't considered gentrifiers, right? And like Chappelle just got into sort of trouble, I guess, as, as a headline because um, they, they think he's against affordable housing. Um, in Ohio, Chappelle helps kill half-baked Ohio affordable housing project. That's the headline. And then Chappelle's team refuted the notion that he stopped low-income units, saying instead that that proposal had been poorly planned. And Dave Chappelle didn't kill affordable housing. Um, concerned residents and a responding village council killed a half-baked plan which never actually offered affordable housing. Neither Dave nor his neighbors are against it. How they, however, they are against the poorly vetted, cookie-cutter, sprawl-style development deal which has little regard for the community, culture, and infrastructure of the village. Now, I don't know because I'm not there and I'm not... I don't really have the time to do the research in that neighborhood, but I'm curious. And it is important to, to be very specific with these stories because the fact that someone, like it could be that there's affordable house, there's a problem here with Dave Chappelle, but it also could be that Dave Chappelle is expecting that people coming into the neighborhood aren't the shady contractors. Right. So Michael Harriet wrote about this mm-hmm. pretty extensively. And the way it was initially reported was rich black man is now rich and wants to make sure poor people don't move into his community. That's that was the big headline. The reason why um, the reporting that, you know, other people did when they sort of dug through the story just a little bit. Dave Chappelle has chosen to move to this tiny little hamlet of 4000 people. So clearly he wants to be in a small town. He does not want to live in D.C. or New York full time. What a lot of developers do, and so this was a developer who was going to come in, take this land, and build sort of this luxury homes, which would take the median income and raise it si- significantly. What a lot of developers do, it Trump did it all the time, is they'll carve out. So it was like I think it was like a fifty million acre or fifty acre place, but like one point seven five of the acreage would be for affordable housing. Mm. And so to say, I don't want this development to come in. You're saying the whole development. So, of course, it's like, well, he doesn't want the poor people to come in. He's like, no, I don't want all these people to come. Like, just the influx of, like, wealthy people, too, because we want to sort of maintain the integrity. Now, are there some people who were at that town meeting who probably didn't want poor people to come in? Probably, right? But I think there's some people who were just like, we moved to a small town for a reason. We don't want to take this empty land. And then all of a sudden, almost double our size, you know, over the next few years because we're building so much housing stock. Because we actually, we move out here for a reason because we like the land. And so I think that that's the complicated narrative, you know, when you're digging through these these plans for increased housing, because most developers get a tax break if they carve out a very small sliver for affordable housing. Now, how we define affordable housing is highly problematic, right? Because mm-hmm. in New York, we know affordable housing, like that horrible deal that Jay-Z made helped make happen for Barclays. That has affordable housing attached to it. Except for it starts at $3,000 for a studio. That's not affordable housing. It's not. But by the metric that they use to calculate it, yes, technically it is. Thanks wow, a lot, really? So there are a lot of developers. You know, Donald Trump never paid taxes on his buildings because his affordable housing, he would have people in Section 8, basically on the, the lowest level of all of, he, 
all of his multi-story buildings that would pay significantly reduced rent because they technically lived in Trump Tower. So he has like four of those apartments in, you know, a 400 unit building. And so he doesn't have to pay taxes because it's technically he's providing affordable housing. So there are loopholes to get around paying your fair share. This is what the developer was trying to do. But I think the Chappelle argument was, we actually take the affordable housing piece out of it. We don't want all of these new houses coming into the community because I'm not sure if they did an environmental impact study. So if you're building housing, we should sort of think about what does it do for the roads? What does it do for the schools? Are we building another school? Like, are you having mainly elderly people? Or are you bringing in young families? Because if so, then we could triple the the size of, you know, our public school system overnight. Like, are we building another middle school? Are we building another high school? Um, and so I don't know if that research was really done. And so that's why you saw the community out more because of the environmental impact study and, and the influx of people potentially, and not just poor people. I think the argument was people. Yeah. I lived in a, I lived in a relatively small town in Connecticut um, for many years, Wilton, Connecticut, which we had one of those kinds of conversations about being in in a town that you chose to live in because it had, in fact, because Wilton was known to have four acre zoning. So that was how they preserved some of their issues about, quote, preserving the town preserving the character of the town. It had formerly been, um, when I first moved to Wilton, it still had areas that had horses. Um, and it was just lovely. But obviously there were not a lot of Black families there, but we were, we were not the first Black family to move there. And they had a conversation about affordable housing. But what it really boiled down to in Wilton, where the d- real dividing line was, wasn't around the housing so much as they there were people in that town who wanted to keep Blacks out of the public schools and New York, I mean, Connecticut was trying, was fighting Brown versus Board of Education well into the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s. It was a case called Chef versus O'Neill. And Wilton had decided to keep it small was the metaphor for it, but, or not the metaphor, it was the code for it. For many people, it was the code word, keeping the character of Wilton, keeping Wilton small and all of that. But what they were really doing was fighting school desegregation. And as long as they kept a certain road the way it was, then that's what technically technically kept the the school district from having to desegregate because you couldn't bring certain school school children in. You could not bust them into the area. There were all sorts of things that were really part of the undercurrent of that community. And it was something that I had to fight within myself because I'm a school desegregation pioneer. I'm one of the four children who desegregated New York City school. How the devil can I be against school desegregation, which I was not 
against school desegregation. But I did move to the town because I did love how beautiful it was. And I did love having the the um, lands and the acreage and all of that. The way Wilton finally cut through was by creating senior housing so that they would not be said to not have affordable housing. This happened years after we had after I had moved from the town, but it, it's interesting. So much of America is cloaked in codes around race and racism. And even you mentioned like Eric Adams in New York. Yeah, it's complicated to have a black man who is a former police officer become mayor, but in this either or of is he really police and for police or is he really not, you know, going to be for the community? Nobody's dealing with a conversation that I took a mayor up here, actually city manager up here to task for, which is who is vetting the police? The issue isn't whether we have police or we don't have police, whether we have more police or we have less police. The issue is that we do not want hot dog policemen going out murdering black people. That's what it's about. So can we have more police that aren't racist and trigger happy? Who is vetting the police? And he went through this whole analysis about how we don't really get to choose our police. It's done by the state. And then the unions. So all of these things have all of these ridiculous layers that have been layered on to maintain a certain level of status quo, none of which probably was in Dave Chappelle's mind when he simply looked at what is this going to mean if you're cloaking whether or not we have affordable housing and you're really just trying to keep certain people out and the affordable housing is a charade in the first place because the other thing is that you could have quite lovely affordable housing if you didn't have at the core poor people aren't entitled to live decently. It doesn't cost a, a whole lot more to have a very nice small house, um, like in in the movie in in the movie um, uh, that they play every Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life, and the whole thing about George's father is that he wanted to give townspeople what's wrong with having a nice house to live in, raise your house children to live in with a couple of rooms and a bath. What's wrong with that? You know, that is something that is also baked into America, that if you're not of a certain economic standing, and you're not of a certain economic standing, because we don't particularly care whether or not we have people working full-time for no money, which is a legacy from, from slavery. But if you're not, you're just not entitled to be treated like a person in the United States. And to me, that is really what this conversation is about, but we're never going to discuss it. I find that, you know, like right now in the comedy scene, the comedians is very divided right now. Like, you know, we had Joe Rogan with his, you know, ignorant compilation. And then I've seen a lot of white comics, male comics double down and defending him and not understanding what they're defending 
And this is the problem of not being educated, right? It's like they don't even know what we're talking about right here. Like what, you know, I was, I was, of course, I was playing Fortnite with someone yesterday. But during this Fortnite game, I was saying that these white male comics think they're losing something. And this person corrected me and said, no, they, they're not losing anything. They're afraid that what they have is dying out. Their style of comedy is dying out. And I said, well, yeah, that's true, too. But, you know, for black people in America, I feel like we never had a chance to go, oh, we're losing something. We've never had the ability to gain every step of the way. When you look back in history, you look at the original people. It was black people in Central Park. Yes. You know, Walt, Black Wall Street. You know, like I was having a conversation with, you know, the owner of the comedy. So he didn't even know what Black Wall Street was. But he's trying to have a conversation with me about what white people are losing right now as a part, you know, as a part of what just happened in the pandemic. How his businesses, white businesses, can't get these breaks. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but you still don't understand a lot of what we're talking about right here. Of what, what inequity really is. Well, so many white people see this as a zero-sum game. So if there's a success for black people, they immediately think that it's something that's being taken away from them. There's no concept of like, well, you know, we can both rise. It's like, no. I mean, just like the apoplectic, you know, comments that you heard after the Super Bowl. It's like, the Super Bowl isn't ours anymore. There are all these black people performing, you know, at the halftime show. It's like, so because there's entertainment for black people, then that means there's absolutely no longer any entertainment for you. That's And all those black people who were performing on the field before the halftime show didn't bother them. Right. No, that's making them money. And so they're happy with that. So I just, you know, I, I think that the the amount of racism that is still so prevalent in this country that in so many ways is just acceptable is exhausting for a lot of Black people. And we're, you know, we've talked about this, Marino, on your podcast. It's, we can't blame the former president. He just helped excavate it and help people come out of the shadows so they don't feel ashamed for their racist thoughts and leanings. He's he's essentially saying, like, I co-sign all of this. Um, and I think people are really comfortable now with saying, I don't like seeing all these Black people. I don't like, you know, having to share whatever it is, schools, restaurants, roads, you name it, with these others. Um, and we're just at this point now where the level of exhaustion of Black people sort of looking at their former friends and neighbors, like, this is real. And people aren't backing down from their feelings because also there are very few consequences for said feelings. Yeah, well, I'm going to find, let me tell you something. Speaking as the woman from 227, I will tell on you. Oh, yeah, listen. Because <laughs> I've, I've seen some Instagram posts. I've seen some comments. And I'm like, I'm not going on social media. I will see you and I will say it to your face that what you have put out there to double down on Joe Rogan is disrespectful to the black community, especially at a time during Black History Month. You know, it, it's really disgusting what I'm seeing. Um, I I want to ask you this question, Christina, because I'm really curious. 
how you handle the question of critical race theory. Like when I talk to my white friends who are struggling with their children in school, they like, like during George Floyd, everyone was on board. It felt. And then now I see my white friends sort of like tapping out of our struggle Mm -hmm. and going, I don't want my white kids to feel guilty. How do I explain (laughs) to them that is not what one, this is not critical race theory that your kids are getting. And two, what is going on with your kid where they're coming home and thinking that they're cycle like trauma like what's going so on? I have two things. I'm like, one, I refuse to engage in this nothing burger debate. I was like, I teach college students and I don't teach critical race theory. I was like, it is taught as an elective in certain law schools. So stop with like, I'm not having this conversation. I Thank don't you. teach it. So are we going to talk about teaching accurate history? That's a different conversation. But this buzzword of CRT, I'm like, define it for me then. Because we know that Kimberly Crenshaw, the architect behind it, you know, it teaches it as a legal scholar. And most of my friends who went to law school had to fight for the one elective class so they could learn about critical race theory. So that's that's where I'm just like, I'm not entertaining that question. If we want to have a conversation about the history of this nation, let's have that conversation. Most of us are taught inaccurate, if not false, if not downright lies in school. So if you were that afraid of your child learning about the reality of this nation that so many people still have to live in, you have to ask yourself, why is it that they're so afraid, right? Ruby Bridges is only 67 years old. My mom is 73. I always tell my mom's age because she looks fabulous. And so I can say that she's 73. But I'm like, my dad integrated Miami Central Public High School. He's 74. My mother never went to a single school her entire life with a white person. These people are still, black folks are still among us. And so are the white folks who did this stuff. So like, that's the fear. You don't want to have a conversation asking grandma, where were you? on the side of history because they don't want to say that they were at the, that the countertops, you know, sort of punching Dr. King or whomever. Right. I mean, don't forget Dr. King was younger than Betty White. So mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if Dr. King was still alive today, he would be much younger than Betty White and Sidney Poitier. So like these, these civil rights icons are still walking among us. When Janice says, Oh, I knew Shirley Chisholm, you know, when, Oh, I knew so-and-so it's civil rights history. Isn't that long ago? Like, this is in the 60s and the 70s. Marina, we were born in the 70s. This stuff was still popping off, right? And so maybe not in the extent that it was in, say, the 50s and 60s, but this is not, you know, I think a lot of white people like to think about Black history as like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're talking about my parents. We're talking about people who are walking among us. And some people are still working, right? And so I, I think my frustration is, Republicans are so good at branding something yes. and then sticking into it and repeating it and repeating it. You know, we ask all these MAGA people, it's like, I hate CRT. And it's like, well, what is it? It's like, I don't know, but I just know it's bad. And it makes my, my kids feel bad. And I was like, have you ever stopped to ask yourself how black kids feel? How did I feel learning about Huck Finn as the one black girl in honors English hearing the N word left and right, knowing that people reveled in saying it in front of me. Right. And the agency that I did and did not have as a student in the classroom. How do you think that black children feel when, you know, This is why I despise Andrew Yang with a hot white passion. But, you know, when he says, oh, I'm Asian, I'm good at math. I'm good at math. I teach stats. Like when you say you're good at math, Asian person, what you're saying is somebody else isn't. And we know who teachers think is not good at math. Right. And so those are sort of the historian coming from a family of educators. Those are the things that black families have to teach their kids going into kindergarten about touching hair or trying to wipe off our skin or, 
And my niece had to deal with something where a little white boy, you know, touched her bum because she doesn't have, you know, a tiny bum. She's got, she didn't get it from our side of the family because we don't have boobs, <laughs> but she had it from the other side of the family. But it's like, you know, dealing with, you know, different body shapes and different complexions and hair textures and all these things that Black parents have to do to make sure that their kids are fortified and feel whole and feel complete. Whether they go to schools with loads of white people or just a sprinkling, or even if they don't, the images that they see or what happens when they are out in the world, the level of stress that we have when we walk out of our door. And now we know we can't even sleep in our own houses and be safe or sleep on the couch of somebody else's house and be mm-hmm. safe or go worship on the, in a church and be safe or walk down the, the street and be safe or be in a park. Like, so there is no space for us to ever be safe or be free. And these are questions and conversations that Black parents have to have with their children at way too early an age. So it's a luxury that white parents don't ever have to have this conversation, as they should as Americans, That's because right. Black history is American history, right? If what, what I always tell white people is, you should feel furious that your educational system denied you of knowing, you know, we know about black inventors and things that, you know, we learn about in our church or our homes and black history month, but maybe just throughout our lives, our parents have told us, you know, a black person invented that. Or, you know, did you know the, you know, my, my grandfather was a Sigma. My dad's a Q. My mom's an AKA. So like, Oh, like divine nine, like I knew about, and you know, it wasn't until Kamala Harris until, you know, white folks were like, wait, what are these black fraternities and sororities? And I was like, I grew up with Q cousins across the country. It's like, you should know about this. This is American history. These are all organizations that were started in the early 1900s. This is part of the American fabric. You should be disappointed in your educational system that you didn't learn this. You should be disappointed that you don't know about W.E.B. Du Bois until you get to college and maybe have a Black professor like Chrissy who teaches you something. You should be furious that you, you know, you know one or two civil rights icons or, you know, maybe you know Toni Morrison, but nobody else, Right. Or like the black masters. It's like, you don't know who Romay Bearden is? He's one of the great, or, you know, I got a William Johnson right here poster. Not a, not an original, right? Or like, you know, I'm looking behind Janice. It's like, that's a Jonathan Green. Yes, you don't is. know who Jonathan Green is? How many white kids in South Carolina have no idea who Jonathan Green is? He's an artist for your listeners out there, especially phenomenal. the international ones. He's a phenomenal artist from South Carolina. The, one of the great sort of modern day artists living among us. How many white people in South Carolina have never even heard of Jonathan Green? How many black people haven't heard of Jonathan Green? And they should. They should learn about him in school. You know what I'm saying? So like when we go from the arts to education to history to science and technology and all these ways that they try and erase black people from the narrative, not just from history, but from the reality. We see what's going on with SCOTUS and everything else. They try and erase us from the conversation. I try and put it back on white people. because I'm like, I'm not about to stress myself out and go into an early grade worried about this. You should be angry. You should be demanding that you learn more. But instead, people just want to go into the hovel and the fear of actually learning something new and stretching what their understanding of the world looks like, especially their country. They don't want to do it. And so it's like, well, just shut it down. It's like shutting down the conversation doesn't make, make it go away. And it doesn't make it that it didn't happen. Right? Like, you know, they they want to know about the, the king that they know now, which is like, he's so great. And it's like, you mean the one that 78% of Americans called a domestic terrorist when he was assassinated? He didn't die of a car accident or old age or cancer. He died of assassination because you all wanted to kill him because you thought he was a domestic terrorist because he was trying to mobilize poor people around the globe, not just the United States. So like, let's talk about that king who went to Riverside Church and talked about the Vietnam War. And then we get ourselves into Afghanistan and Iraq for 20 years. And we're about to do it again in the Ukraine and Russia. Like, this this failure to appreciate and respect history and the ways in which America has 
done so much damage to her own people, starting with native peoples and then 400 years or 300 plus years of chattel slavery to say nothing we've done to other immigrants and the 200 years of Chinese exclusion acts and you name it and you name it and you name it. And it's like, so you just don't want to learn that. And then when we're confronted with immigration crises, some folks are like, wow, we've never done this before. Yes, we have. What's going on at the border is always going on at the border. Right. This is what you do. This, this is, is what, this is who we are. Right. Yes. This is, we are a bellicose nation. We are a bloodthirsty nation. We can't stop hunting and killing people either on our own land or abroad. This is the origin of our nation. I teach about the framers. I teach about the debates they had. This is who we are. And until we are honest, we've never had an honest conversation about who we are. This is the conversation that why we won't have reparations conversations. Until we have admitted what we have done and what we continue to do and the effects of policies from not just hundreds of years ago, but 50 years ago, FDR ignoring Black women and excluding domestic workers from the, from the New Deal to make sure we didn't get Social Security benefits. So 100 years later, this is part of the wealth gap that we experience as Black people. The GI Bill not going out to Black soldiers adequately when they came back from the war. This prevented us from buying houses and going to college at the same rates as white people who were soldiers. All these conversations. And then it's like, well, I don't know why Black people don't have any money and they don't have generational wealth. It's like, because of the policies that you set up for redlining. I have so many friends. It's like when your grandmother dies, you're going to be a millionaire overnight. Yes. When black people's grandparents die, most of the time, we all have to come together as a community and bury our loved ones. And take up a collection for someone who worked their entire lives. Right. And so then even in the media, we have these the framing of stories that are just horrifying. So it's like, oh, a black woman who's 90 years old stood in line for 10 hours to vote for Barack Obama. Isn't that beautiful? No, it's called voter suppression. That's a horrible story. (laughs) That's right. That is not a feel-good story. That is a terrible story. Because when I lived on the Upper West Side for 20 years, if I waited more than five minutes, I was outraged. I was like, oh, what am I doing? I have places to go and people to see. I do not wait in line to vote. Like, come on. And they made sure that I never had to wait more than five minutes because my polling station had it together. That's now right. that I moved outside of the Upper West Side, it's like, okay, girl, you better wake up at 6 a.m. Because you voting with the people nowadays. And so they do not care. And I very well could end up waiting for a few hours if I'm not careful. I lived on the West Side at 117th Street. And we, on my side of 117th Street going towards Morningside Park, We had a polling place where you went in the day that Obama was elected. You went in, the place was empty. There were like 30 or 40 polling booths empty in this school. You went one block east on 117th Street. There was a black church that was the polling site for the entire, okay. That little garage. Exactly. And they had people going all around the block, standing in line, which is why those um, folks and white politicians do not want people to be able to get water when they're standing on line. The line was rimming, circling the block. They had two polling booths 
for in where the majority of the population was the side that I was living on was the area that had um, mostly townhouses and condos. The side that that those two polling booths served had mostly the old apartment buildings with multiple people living in an apartment, that kind of thing. And they had hours, eight hours to, to vote for Obama, and it was deliberate. And at a certain point of the two polling booths, one broke down and the city could not find a way to replace it. That's New York City. We love to talk about the South. This was systemic, it was systematic, it was deliberate, and it was done in New York City. Okay. Well, Janice, you know what you like to hear? As, as Malcolm X said, everything south of the Canadian border is the U.S. South. Thank you. Up <laughs> south and down north. Um, exactly. But I want to make a, a fun uh, point. Oh, to- Janice, I just want to tell you, they have fixed that. Because I, I live on 117th. So they, and I, I voted, and I remember they used to, I used to kind of do jokes about how they would be eating chicken in there because they were hungry. And I'm now I'm realizing they didn't have a break, really. But um. I used to, I was like, are they eating fried chicken in the bush? What are they doing? But um, they have fixed that now. And I used to, I often wonder, I was like, oh, I can't go to the little church anymore. It's because of that reason of what you just said. They now moved it to the high school. They moved it to several high schools. And well, it's much better. Well, a whole lot better. of folks, it, it's, it's, it's much less deliberate is what yeah. it is. Because that was deliberate. It was voter suppression. They knew black folks were going to come out in droves for Obama. And how dare you? But I wanted to to just give another side that was fun. When you were talking, when um, Christina was talking about how, you know, white folks should be so angry that their children aren't getting something. In 1989, 88 and 19- excuse me, 1998 and 1999, McDonald's licensed my book, Glory Days, and did this whole McDonald's Presents Glory Days campaign. You come in for a Big Mac and you ask for Glory Days, and I did a special uh, booklet for them. And I noticed that a lot of McDonald's in predominantly white neighborhoods didn't have it. I went into someplace and I asked, do you have glory days? Nobody knew who I was. So I just asked, you know, and they said, no, we don't have that. And and other people were saying, well, what is that? And I said, well, don't you know, there's a whole McDonald's campaign around this book, glory days. No, we don't have that. And I looked at the white people on that line and said, you should be furious that black people are getting something you're not. And they went crazy, yes. That's the way I feel about the black stamps at the post office. weeks, they had, that McDonald's got the Glory Days campaign. Mm. Not because, for obvious reasons, I simply said, you white, black folks are getting something you're not. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, I mean, but. I think, you know, that would be a really interesting strategy, Marina, back to your original question. If we changed the CRT with, instead of, you know, I don't want my kids to learn this. It's like, well, black kids are learning something that you're not going to learn. That's right. And and, and this is, you know, when I had all my drama in grad school and, you know, they were just 
basically hazing me and having me do everything twice. And I was like, that's okay. And the hazing stopped when I said, I'll just be doubly smart. I was like, you're making me do everything twice. So like now it's just solidifying all the things that I know. And I just, well, I'll just, you're just making me faster and stronger. Like, I think your, your attempt was to break, but it's like, you're not doing that. You don't understand. That's not happening with black folks. We're actually, we know black history and white history and white folks are just now learning only white history. So it's like their gaps in knowledge at some point are going to catch up with them. And there was a, there was a point that was made, you know, when, when folks are going to apply to colleges and, you know, a lot of the state schools will take X percent of the, you know, a a graduating class, say like the top 10% of every high school across Mm -hmm. the, you know, state gets on. It's like, when you start finding out that these kids from certain schools know nothing and they're going to come in and really struggle that first year. It's like, right. Cause their high schools and their middle schools didn't teach them anything mm. because their history books are basically random pamphlets of nonsense and propaganda. The person who actually created critical race theory was attorney Derek Bell. He was a civil rights attorney who ended up going to Harvard. He also advised the attorneys who represented Anita Hill um, at the, at the Clarence Thomas hearing. Derek Bell is the creator of critical race theory. He, for, for people who, who, who don't know, and he did it for Harvard Law School students because critical theory is part of the regular law school curriculum. And then he created a critical race theory to talk about the impact of racism on uh, legislate on law in the United States. That's what that is. On the other hand, if white kids feel bad, well, maybe join the club because other children have been with this nonsense, nonsensical curriculum that the has been had in the United States since the late 1890s when the Daughters of the Confederacy created essentially the curriculum that we have now to rehabilitate the lost cause of the South. That's the curriculum that has been taught. And we tweak around the edges of these lies. But if you look in, uh, I know when, when I was in school, when if you looked in any of our social studies textbooks, the only time that black folks were mentioned, and this was then into when my daughters were, were in high school, was we were mentioned as the cause of the Civil War. So it wasn't their issue. It was our fault that they had to have a civil war. And then they never mentioned you again until the 50s, where you were the cause of civil unrest. And we still refer to the civil rights era, not as a human rights campaign, which it is in a country that is rooted in violations of human rights. And we don't discuss it that way, but that's what we, that's what happened. So, you know, so much of our mythology as to who we are, we are still studying and teaching each other how to undergird the Confederacy. I think white kids in America are, were angry that they weren't getting the history at a point during the unrest, you know, when we were all locked in, it was interesting to see white kids on TikTok 
showing how angry they were that they weren't getting this information. I work with um, Jeannie Gaffigan with the Imagine Society. You know, all her kids, obviously, they're all white, right? But I told them, I said, you know what you want to do for Black History Month is do your homework. That's the best thing I could tell you is to go and look for people you have not heard about and and really do a collage of their stories. Not the ones we're always hearing about, but the ones you haven't. Have the kids do their homework and find very important figures in Black history, you know, and the the ability for them to do that, they, they will feel much more rewarded by doing that work. I remember when I had to do that work and finding like, you know, two women in history. Elizabeth Keckley is one. Mm. Susie King Taylor is another one who mm. worked, you know, with uh, Clara Barton for and I and I wrote monologues based on both women. You know, Elizabeth mm. Keckley, you know, was a modiste dressmaker and in, in um that worked with Lincoln and Lincoln's Mary wife. Todd Lincoln's Mary Todd Lincoln. She wrote a book called behind the scenes. Cause she, and I made her, obviously I'm a comedian. So I made her very comical cause she, she was gossiping and she was given all the information. So she would, she would talk about her achievements. And then she's like, did you know what she did? How much money she owed at Stewart's in New York city? You know, so it was a great way of presenting history. But I also think like now that they're preventing kids in some ways of reading books in schools, these kids are going to want it even more. Like to your point about like you're you're not getting something that black people are getting. I think they don't their kids are going to want these books. It's going to be like like alcohol, like you can't drink. Now you want to drink, you know, Art Spiegelman's. I was just going to say Art Spiegelman's book, Mouse, on the Holocaust, has hit the top of the Amazon charts because of this Kentucky, Tennessee or Kentucky? Tennessee. Tennessee school district who banned Mouse saying that it had sex, it had nudity and violence. Like, why is nudity and violence? Because they stripped every single person naked who came right. into those death camps. Why right. violence? Because killing people is violent. And right. why is it so offensive to certain people? Because it was Christians who did it. You're right. And there's Christians who stood by and watched it happen. And there are yes. Americans like Jared Kushner's grandparents, you know, who who were in the Holocaust. And then you have a, two generations later, people saying, well, I don't want immigrants to come, right? I mean, this is this is what's so horrifying. I mean, and what I tell my students this all the time when they say the word slave, I'm like, eh, eh, you know, just slave. one of clarifications. I was like, enslaved, because that creates a relationship between two people. I was like, slave is a noun, table, chair, pen, cup, slave. I was like, but an enslaved person creates a relationship because we were not all on the continent of Africa just as slaves. We were people with families and siblings and friends and laughter and jobs and homes and desires and dreams. I was like, and then someone came along and forced us into chattel slavery for years and years. And so I think that our language is important because Republicans have been able to weaponize. You know, when I tell my students all the time, it's like, well, you know, uh, pro-life. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Pro-choice or anti-choice. I was like, this is a governmental conversation that we're having. Do you believe that a woman should have autonomy over her own body? Because there are lots of people who are pro-choice, 
who would never have an abortion. That's their prerogative. But they still believe that a person should be able to choose whether or not they make that decision. That's an important decision when Republicans rip away our social safety net, when they don't fund public school, when they don't believe in helping us find affordable housing, when they don't care about the environment, when they want to just keep us sort of in the the most destitute, non-social safety net having country. When they elect a man who they know molested women nonstop, and then you turn around and say, well, men turn around and say abortion isn't necessary. And we now have somebody running for governor who said, well, what difference does it make if the ch- if she's impregnated because of rape? I mean, it's still a child. That's the mentality that is is going down because it because in the 1990s, um, one of the Republican operatives held a folk held focus groups to find out what they could win on. And they found that the most important thing to women was abortion. And the most important thing to black people was affirmative action. And those are the two things that they prioritize to galvanize white males and white women who did not think enough of themselves to do otherwise um, in order to shape the Republican agenda as it has now come to be. And Janice, I think your your point, though, is needs to be underscored. It is white women who uphold patriarchy. This is why I love Mark Twain, right? He is very clear. It is white women who are behind these laws, Yes, right? We, we put it a lot on bl- white men, but let's also be very crystal clear that only white women can make a white man the way we've structured race in this country. Whoa. So they will be abused only but to a point. They are protected class in this country. Like they will always be a protected class because they are the only ones that can sort of create this racialized racist project of white supremacy, anti-black racism, patriarchy, and capitalism. And so the, the ways that white women vote for say Republicans, you know, our policy data shows us from 1952 to the present, white women have only voted for a Democrat in 1964, LBJ, after Kennedy was assassinated. So, you know, sentiments were high for LBJ and 1996 with like Pete Clinton before the scandals. But also it's interesting that white women would vote for a man like Bill Clinton in 1996. Right. So, but other than that, they are Republicans. It's black women who were so overwhelmingly Democrat that we make it seem like there's a gender gap, but there is no gender gap because white women have to uphold patriarchy to protect themselves because they are still a protected. A, a certain white woman. And they do. I was in uh, Ohio when Hillary Clinton was about to run for president the first time. And women were coming up to me in droves after I did the speech to tell me that she had, that Hillary Clinton had just come to town and they were so happy to meet her and they bought her book. And I said to them, are you, and so are you going to vote for her? And almost to a woman, they said, us vote to put that man back in the white house. They could not even fathom that a woman could be president, and it was all about putting that man back in the White House. And true to the point, most white women voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Knowing what they did, knowing what he did with women. I mean, that's the same way you don't need white people to uphold white supremacy. You don't need men to uphold patriarchy. 
there are a lot of women who do really, really well doing that. I can't, we can't hear you, Marina. Marina. You're on mute. That was, is good that I was on mute. Um, I do want to point to some of these um, articles just real fast. Betty Davis, a uh, free-spirited funk sing- singer, has passed at 77. Enigmatic and free-spirited funk singer passed away Wednesday. She spent the first 30 years of her life rising into the spotlight, then promptly disappeared from public view for the next 30 years. Her music focused on electrified funk with blues elements. She was an outspoken, sexually empowered performer who went against the cultural establishment at the time. And she wrote almost every song she ever recorded and produced most of her albums herself. Many have suggested she was ahead of her time. She grew up in North Carolina in Pittsburgh, then moved to New York at 16 to pursue music. Outside of her music, she was an intensely private person, but was a trailblazer, both musically and personally. I have to say, for me, um, it's kind of embarrassing that I, I didn't really know a lot about Betty Davis. I know I've heard her music. I listened to her interview. If you get a chance on NPR, you got to check out Betty Davis on NPR. They have a great collection of her music, an interview that is hands down one of the best interviews to hear about her life. And um, for me, she speaks volumes because she was someone who was ahead of her time. And I think in with black artists, a lot of times we give credit to the artists that we see, not to the credit to the artists that put others on the path. And she is someone who's put, you know, like Erica Badu Mm -hmm. in position, Janelle Monae, you know, Beyonce, you know, we have to give flowers to you know, especially sisters like this, because, you know, we're talking about we don't want history to repeat itself. Well, you know, when you think about artists that you aren't seeing today, you may want to ask yourself, why is that? And give go see performers that you don't hear about. Go and and do your homework. Go see live entertainment wherever you can. Go see black entertainers wherever you can, because there may be a reason that you're not seeing them, you know, and they may be ahead of their time and you don't know it. So go and support. Now, she did, she was seen, you know, people would stand in line for her, like, you know, Richard Pryor and, you know, Muhammad Ali. Janice, were you, were you a fan of hers? Did you? I only knew of her and when, and, but I have never seen her perform. But when I saw that picture of her, I said, I want that coat. (laughs) (laughs) So folks should read that article and look at that coat that she has on. But no, um, in in fact, you know, her her name was, um, I, I think a lot of people did not know really a lot about her because of her name, because you just hear the name Betty Davis and you're assuming it's someone else. I knew about her because I was you know, involved in the music industry. Um, and then Betty Davis, when I read the article that you sent, it was just extraordinary to see what she had done. And you talk about putting us on the path. Essentially, she is like descendant of Ma Rainey, those times bending kind of women who owned, who de- were determined to own themselves and their work. Yes. Thank you for that. Also, a small, small business spotlight, since we're talking about history, Black History board game created by 24-year-old veteran uh, Jamal Nelson, a young black man from Indianapolis, has recently launched a board game called Knowledge of Self. 
He began working on the project while deployed in Germany after reading the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. And the trivia game attempts to represent multicultural, multi-generational perspectives. The point of the board game is you laugh and learn as you venture through black history and culture. So, you know, just wanted to get those those in there. This has been like an amazing, amazing conversation. Um, oh, there's also a documentary which features about a dozen of group of form, former members. And this is for you, Christina, because it's in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. The East. On, yes, mm-hmm. on February 24th. Chronicles the history and impact of the East. I'm still, I'm not fully there post Omicron going to theater. So I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I might have to just wait until it's on cable. Um, I had ventured out in the fall, you know, and started going back to the theater. And, um, you know, when Terrence Blanchard's opera was up and I went and I had sort of started to emerge. And then when Omicron hit, I'm now back sort of indoors. I know. So I might have to. I'd have to miss that one, but mm-hmm. um, there's so much good stuff out there. And I really do want to, so I still, I became a member of BAM knowing good and well, I was not going to BAM at all, but <laughs> I still, you know, like it's, it's, I want BAM to continue. And like, I physically won't be in the building, but I want to make sure that their programs are yeah. still up and running. So like the Brooklyn Museum, not going, the Brooklyn Library, not going, Prospect Park, I do stroll through Prospect Park, Botanic Gardens, I stroll through there. So like, I became a member of all these institutions because I want to see them thrive, even if I'm not going to use them. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we need to cool down for a second. We we need those places. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you ladies so much for joining me today. This is great. Just listening to women of color who know what they're talking about. Thank you very much. You add, you're, you're going to like educate so many people. Our listeners are always happy when you're both on. So it was good to have you both on at the same time. Janice, where our listeners can find you. I saw the book of the sisters. Sister days, sister days. Sister day. Thank, you Thank you so much. Um, well, I'm Janice Adams, J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. And that's where you can find me and all things with friends like us. Oh, my goodness. I feel my day is healed from being together. So with friends like us, thank you so much. And it's my first time really getting to meet Christina. So thank you. Thank you for that. And um, with friends like us, I get to meet wonderful people. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Christina. Listen to me on FAQ.NYC, which is my New York City politics podcast. And I'm retooling my podcast for the Grio, which is going to be more like a little game show. Um, so we can have people on and ask you questions about Black history, actually. Um, so it's like a Black history uh, trivia podcast with conversation with interesting people. I'm finishing up a book on Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Stacey Abrams. So I'll let you know when that's done. And I just had that piece published about Mary and Barry and the nation. So if you're interested in cities. And with friends like us, you all feel like spring, even when it's 20 <laughs> degrees outside. Oh, I, I love, love it. it. I love it. It's on my computer. 23. Oh, you got you got 23, <laughs> I think. BK. Oh, let's we're, we're on average because I'm 15. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so we average out. <laughs> 
Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. The week, this is the week that I will be performing in Princeton, New Jersey at the McCarter Theater. So go and check me out there. I'm doing live shows now. I am back on the road. I am still wearing my mask, though. When I go on, I still bring my own mic- microphone because I'm like Christina. I'm still being very, very, very careful. But I am excited because I did my first hour this week on the road. Whew, it was hard because I have not done that in a while. And it's been great because I'm in this new space where I'm talking about only new stuff. So I actually like it. And you want to come and see it So because it's new. It's new stuff, new material. And um, with friends like us, you can bring not just history, but live history to you. That is American history. So uh, thank you, ladies. Check Check us out. out.